All right, well, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Holding fast to the Word. I love Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I love Cottondale Baptist Church more. Uh, And I love it differently. But my affection for your congregation is real and to the core. In our theological circles, there can be a tendency toward narrowness of scope. We can think that we're the only ones that have it right, maybe one or two others. I don't believe that uh, your congregation and ours are the only two faithful churches in town. But I do say that those are the only two churches that I recommend to other people on a regular basis. (laughs) Whether that's too narrow or not, I'll let you be the judge. I am so thankful for your elders here. They really are princes among men. There's no other way to put it. They have been so kind and gracious to fill the pulpit in my many needs for uh, time away in the last couple of years. And um, they're faithful to the Lord. They're faithful to His Word. They're faithful to under-shepherd the Lord's sheep here at Sovereign Grace and hold them in high esteem. I love sitting on the back pew when I come here. Uh, before the services, and just observing as an outsider. I love to see the love that is expressed, the, the excitement of being together. It's, uh, it's noisy, it's happy, it's as it should be. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but gathering in great joy. I love the singing here. Uh, before the holy book is ever cracked open for exposition, the truths of God are massaged deep into our minds and hearts through the singing. That's as it ought to be. Uh, This is an encouraging church. This is a welcoming church, and we have been the beneficiaries of the fact that it is a praying church. So when I say I love y'all, I really, really do mean it. Well, last year at this time, Dawn and I were planning a sabbatical. It was to be two months. After 30 plus years in ministry, we were ready. I mean really ready to be gone. To have some time away from ministry responsibilities, knowing that our our church was in good hands. We had the pulpit supply lined up. Your elders were going to be filling much of that. And uh, I I was just ready to be gone and, and just to get get my mind right again and my heart right again. We were going to go to the mountains. Uh, We were going to go to beaches. We were going to spend a lot of time reading and and resting. And then an almost imperceptible tumor on Dawn's left parotid gland grew to the size of a marble pretty, pretty rapidly. And we started discussing with a surgeon all of the the details of how that parotid tumor might be removed and the risks that would be involved. She could be permanently paralyzed in her face. Uh, She might not be able to ever shut her left eye again. I mean, there were just some really uh, scary things that were talked about. Well, by God's grace and in His providence, we have a very dear Christian brother, uh, Reformed brother, who is our radiation oncologist. 
And he said, I think we've got a better way. And we'll use this specific targeted radiation that will deal with this without those risks. And so Dawn went in. She got fitted for this Hollywood-type contraption that uh, actually buttoned her down to the table so she couldn't move a muscle. And there was actually a nuclear physicist who was in attendance on uh, these treatments, which I thought was pretty cool. And she got through that, and the, the tumor responded within a week. It was almost gone. I mean, it was unheard of, uh, an amazing uh, providence of God. So that, that cut into our time. Uh, but before that, we were going to go to Chattanooga for a few days, which we did. And uh, I've got to tell you, part-time, since I'm at a small church, uh, the only pastor there, I'm uh, a part-time Uber driver. And at the very height of the early days of the pandemic, I was driving hundreds of people who would get in the car and they'd kind of <clears throat> cough and sniffle and I'd get nervous and think I was going to die and actually drove uh, an individual directly from China in January of 2020 uh, to Birmingham when people were just talking about rumors of some you know, virus from China. And I drove so I was in the car with them a few feet away uh, for an hour and uh, never got sick, never got a sniffle. And then we start our sabbatical and within hours I get sick, get COVID, uh, broken glass throat, uh, you know, just feeling miserable and fatigued. I had three days and only three days, the only three days in my life of panic attacks. I would start to drift off to sleep and I would see a dump truck in my mind and I would panic. I would see a dog walking down the street and I'd panic. I mean, it's just, it did weird things to me. Well, then uh, we, we get through that. We make it in the second month of our planned sabbatical. The first month was pretty much shot. In the second month of our planned sabbatical, we get to Orlando, and we're, we're headed to uh, Ormond Beach. We, we have a couple days there at Ormond, very romantic, sea breeze, wonderful time away. We leave from there. We go to my mom and dad's house to spend the rest of our time, and a hurricane hits. We were planning to go back to the beach like almost every day, and the beaches that we were planning to go to, they didn't exist anymore. I mean, they were like wiped out and... It was unreal how the providences of God worked and all that. And yet we saw His faithfulness and His kindness and His mercy over and over and over again. And so now, uh, since then, we've come back. Uh, Dawn has had um, a compression fracture in her lower spine. She had to have a kyphoplasty. They put the cement in and kind of structure up that uh, compression fracture. That led to some other issues. She's had spine injections and... Uh, shingles and getting ready for chemo in the next couple of weeks. It's been an amazing journey. And in all of it, I can tell you this. God is good. He is faithful. We trust Him. We love Him. And we cannot begin to thank you for holding us up in prayer. It really does matter. Which brings us to the phrase... In Greek of our text today, logon zoes epekentes, hold fast to the word of life. Let's pray together. Father, show us your ways, teach us your paths, guide us in your truth, and teach us. For you are God our Savior, and our hope is in you all the day long. Bless your people. 
glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. For nearly 57 years now, my life has been very, very easy. I'm almost ashamed to say that. I I was adopted uh, by two wonderful uh, parents. I have uh, been blessed in more ways than I, can, than I can count. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. I can't do that. I, I can't count that high. But the last three years of my life, I have learned something of the desperation that is in that text. Holding fast to the Word of life. Desperately reading the Bible. Not just reading it to check it off of a checklist but reading it because I don't think I will make it through another hour if I don't feed on as much of God's Word as I can get in. That desperation is something of what is being described here by Paul as he writes to the Philippians. We need fellowship, as we just heard. We need the Spirit of God in our lives, and we, brothers and sisters, need the Word of life. With a theme like lordship, we cannot get very far in our journey without resorting to the Bible for our understanding of, commitment to, and application of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a Bible-based doctrine. Going on a pilgrimage to Israel or serving as a missionary to China might be a response to the lordship of Jesus. So might the selling of everything that you have and giving the proceeds to Sovereign Grace... Baptist Church. Those might be expressions of your submission to the Lordship of Christ. However, we know that even though those things in and of themselves are good, there is one thing that is certainly an expression of our Lordship, understanding, and that is holding fast to the word of life. It is the beginning and the end, the sum and the substance, the foundation and the structure of our submission to Jesus as Lord heard a fascinating title to a devotional in Table Talk magazine. Some of y'all use that devotional uh, from Ligonier Ministries. And the title of the article was rather provocative. The Lordship of Scripture. The Lordship of Scripture. Since it was brief, I'm going to share it with you. Begins with Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The author says, A few years ago I met with a friend of mine whom I had not seen for about a decade. In college we had a daily Bible study together. At that time he was a valiant defender of the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. 
When we met again, however, he told me he no longer believed in an inerrant Bible. I asked him why. Well, he said, I spent a couple of years in a Muslim country as a missionary, and I heard them saying the same things about the Koran. I guess I got a more cosmopolitan perspective. When I got back to the States, he continued, I went to Union Seminary and was exposed to higher critical theories and scholarship, and I just had to set aside my mistaken youthful adherence to biblical infallibility. I asked him what he was still able to believe, and he said, I still believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I rejoiced to hear him say this. After all, important as intellectual commitment to the doctrine of inerrancy is, it is faith in Christ that saves us. But I asked him this question. You say you believe in Christ as your Lord, but how does he exercise his lordship? Obviously not through the Bible, because you have set up your own mind as supreme judge of the Scriptures. So how do you know the Lord's will? He said that he obtained God's will through the church. Which church, I asked. The Presbyterian church, he replied. Which Presbyterian church, I asked. I went on to point out to him that whatever church he chose, we both knew it had changed its mind from time to time and reversed itself on various positions. This is where the rubber meets the road. The reformers maintained that the Bible was the place where Christ's lordship and will were to be heard because the church was fallible. The voice of the church has weight, but only the voice of the Son is inerrant. Where in your life do you locate final authority for matters of faith and practice, ethics and decision making? If you claim Jesus as Lord, that authority must reside in the unchanging Scriptures. In our day of changing standards, be sure that the decisions you make today are based on the unchanging truth of the Bible. You cannot have too high a view of Scripture. You can't. It is true. It is God-breathed. It stands forever. And if you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must cling to the Bible as if your life depended upon it. Because it does. Not to belabor a point, but we cannot begin to expound the text for this hour without considering the context in which it is found. There is a therefore in this text as well, Brother Jacob, and it tells us what to look back to. And it is verses 1 to 11. The Lord Jesus who meditates, excuse me, who mediates his lordship through the inspired, inerrant, infallible Bible we hold in our hands is the Lord of Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And that's important for us to know. When we when we talk about holding fast to the word of life, it is the word of life that proceeds from and is the instrument of the mediation of the lordship of Jesus described in Philippians 2, 1-11. So let's look back at that briefly. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do you do that? How do you live properly in the body of Christ? Have this mind among yourselves which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He Himself, in His person, through His works, is the sum and substance of the manifold blessings we enjoy as Christians. Here described as encouragement, comfort, participation or fellowship in the Holy Spirit, affection, sympathy, joy, love, full unity of mind and soul. We are so rich in Christ. In fact, the Bible says that for our sakes, He became poor so that we could become rich. As such, we are not to hoard these riches unto ourselves, but we are to look out for each other's needs in the church, even preferring each other to ourselves. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, yes, Treat others like you want to be treated? Yes. Treat each other better than you treat yourself? Yes. His wealth and glory and acclaim in the presence of the Father in heaven was infinite. And yet in humility He took on humanity and bore the image of a servant to ransom His people through His death, even death on a cross. Whatever our view of Scripture However, our submission to the Lordship of Christ works its way out in our daily existence. Our desperate clinging to the word of life starts with a proper view of Jesus' heroic earthly sojourn to rescue His sheep. And since all of creation is going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord someday anyway, let those of us who know Him gladly affirm it moment by moment right now. So, first, how do we, how do we look at this text? I think three ways. First, as the word to which we hold fast is a divine human wonder, so is our submission to Christ's Lordship. Let me say that again. As the word to which we hold fast is a divine human wonder, so is our submission to Christ's Lordship. I wrote a little book uh, years ago about a fascinating man, Dr. Roger Nicole. He's a name that most of y'all, I see some nods, but most of y'all don't, don't know. And I didn't know him uh, until I got to carry him from his house to New Orleans Baptist Seminary in Orlando on Monday night so he could teach for four hours on Monday nights. He was a contracted teacher for our Extension Center, taught systematic theology. He came with a few items, a box... In that box, he had some of his own books, 35 or 40,000 volumes, I think was his library. Our library from the seminary was woefully inadequate in his mind, so he brought his own books so that students could check them out. So he brought a box of books. He brought a blanket, which he didn't use as a blanket, but he folded up and used as a pillow where he would take a 20-minute nap during the 20-minute break we had in that four hours of teaching. He would go next door to to an empty room, lie down flat on his back, go sound asleep for 20 minutes, wake himself up and come back and finish teaching. He had narcolepsy. And there was a wall at Gordon-Conwell Seminary where he taught for many of his years of teaching that he would lean against while he was teaching. And sometimes he'd fall asleep. And he'd be lecturing 
full bore in English, and he'd wake up and he'd pick up right where he left off in German or in Latin or in French. The guy was a genius. One of the doctorates that he completed dealt with this, this issue of the intersection of the divine and the human. And he explored that in great detail. Fascinating man. Great friend. He was involved in pretty much everything that was significant in evangelicalism from the mid-20th century until his death in 2010. Well, look at the Bible in your hand. It may have a paper cover or a premium goatskin cover. It may be in book form or it may be in digital form. Knowing the passages being preached this weekend at this conference, you may even have downloaded from the internet just the portions being expounded so you could take copious notes. But in whatever form, if you have the Word of God, you have a wonder. Who wrote this marvelous book? The Holy Spirit wrote it, you say, and you are correct. But so did Paul and Peter and Moses, and Luke, and Matthew, and Habakkuk. You remember those little chick tracks? When you first became a Christian, you read these little comics. You know, there were tracks written by Jack Chick. There was a, a little uh, book called First Steps for New Christians. And it was talking about how to grow as a Christian. I don't recommend Jack Chick necessarily. I mean, he had some interesting views. But uh, I really liked this one as a new believer. I'm thumbing through this book and I get to a section about the importance of Bible intake, reading the Word. And there is a Christian in heaven talking to Habakkuk. He said, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't even know you had a book in the Bible. (laughs) Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. Know, Know the Word. It is a wonder. And God has used human beings with their personalities and He has preserved them from error And He has given us this divine human wonder of the Word. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, talk about the divine and the human in intersection. The Lord Jesus Christ is Himself the perfect picture of this intersection. He is God. And He is man. He is not deified man. He is not humanized God. He is the God-man. And so with our sanctification, there is this intersection. God does it. And we do it. It is not what has been termed quietism. You may see quietism not as a thick theological tome on your bookshelves, but as a bumper sticker. Let go and let God. That's quietism. I think Paul would rather say, surrender to God and get going. Get busy in your sanctification. Your part involves ensuring that your faith is genuine, that it is real, that it passes the test. James says, faith without works is dead. 
Do you have a living faith? That's your responsibility to, ter- to determine. Jesus said, by your fruit, you will know them. Do you inspect the fruit of your life? Paul told the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they were in the faith. We are commanded not to take these things for granted. Genuine believers are active in their own sanctification and they are vigilant in self-observation. And what I love about Peter is he combines these two very powerfully. These two responsibilities. To be vigilant, to make sure that you are in the faith. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you need it as a Christian, you have it, Peter says. If you need it to grow, if you need it to understand, if you need it to submit to the Lordship of Christ, you have all that you need in the pages of the Bible. For this very reason, since you have all these resources, listen to this language. Make every effort to supplement your faith. That sounds like activity. That sounds like you've got to do something. You don't have to do something to get saved. You've got to repent and believe and and you've got to be born again and, and God does that. But Once you are saved, you supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, let me pause there. That sounds like you've got to do something. You've got to add these things to your faith. You've got to be pursuing things. You get to one level of sanctification, you you don't coast. You keep going. You keep growing. Peter ends his epistles with these words, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's activity that is required. He goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm... Your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Do this stuff and you will be confirming your election. Something that you can't know. Something that you don't participate in actively is your election. Or the election of anybody else. That's God's doing. I don't see, as a writer of another era said, an E on people's foreheads and go to them and only them and tell them the gospel. We're not hyper-Calvinists. We don't say, well, there, there must be only the elect to hear the word preached. We preach the gospel to everybody. And God saves His own. I don't have anything to do with election. But, but, Peter says, I can confirm my election that I had nothing to do with by Growing in grace and by adding to my faith and by actively supplementing my faith with these virtues. So, verse 12, he begins, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Just a few thoughts. Having an actual apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ around to guide your spiritual growth would be pretty awesome. 
wouldn't it? That'd be great. The Apostle Paul was my mentor, my disciple. Wonderful. But if Paul were your discipleship mentor, he could not be the discipleship mentor of your brother or sister in an underground church in North Korea. Just like Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away so that I send another helper, the the Holy Spirit. Whether you're in Paul's presence, Philippian believers, sovereign grace believers, or in his absence... You have the Word of Life and the Holy Spirit to guide you in your submission to Jesus as Lord. All that Jesus did for us in His humiliation that we just read in the first part of chapter 2, His kenosis or His emptying as the Bible scholars call it, all the context of His sacrifice and the resulting humility with which we treat each other in the church, all of that is the backdrop for our sanctification journey. Paul rejoices in addressing these Philippians as beloved. He loves them. We love each other. And he affirms their exemplary obedience. And just an aside, obedience here is analogous to a Hebrew word that occurs all throughout the Old Testament, shamah, to hear. It doesn't mean you hear something and you consider it and you say, well, maybe I'll do that or maybe I won't. Shamah means you hearken to God's Word. You hear it and you obey it. And so it is here. They are obedient. They hear the truth. And they obey the truth, and he rejoices in that. Well, here we get to the crux. Work out. Is this contradiction? Paul, what are you saying here? You're, you're the great apostle of justification by faith alone. I can't work to get saved. But you're telling me, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Well, there are all kinds of work. Let's, let's talk about work for a second. There are all kinds of work. I have worked hard at manual labor all day and been bone tired. One of the first times, I'm a Florida boy, as Jacob reminded us yesterday, and so I haven't had much use for a fireplace. But one of the first times I ever had a fireplace at my disposal, we were staying at a lake house in Georgia after we had left a church and we were helping start a church. And they had a fireplace. I needed firewood. So I called one of my deacons. He said, oh, I've got land. We can go cut trees. I'm thinking, that'll be nice. You know, we'll go cut some trees and cut up some firewood. And I have never been so tired physically in my life. I really think I ate a dozen hot dogs on the way home from that. I was so hungry, so tired, so worn out. Bone tired. And I have spent hours sitting in a comfortable recliner with my dog looking longingly up into my eyes in my home office. And I have studied for a sermon for hours on end. And at the end of it, I have been bone tired. And after 35 or 45 minutes sometimes of preaching a sermon, I have been bone tired. There are all kinds of work. High school physics taught me one thing that I remember, and I don't remember much else. But I do remember a little measurement of work called the erg. And it comes from this word that Paul uses, katergazamai. Erg is, if I remember correctly, the amount of work necessary to lift a postage stamp one centimeter. 
That's not very much work. That's just a little bit. But our work in sanctification, our work in holding fast desperately to the Word of life, that takes a lot more work. That is strenuous, strenuous, bone-tiring work. My dad likes to say getting old isn't for sissies. Well, neither is biblical sanctification. Dying daily, suffering, laboring to know, understand and apply the Bible, fervent prayer, humbling ourselves, learning contentment, faithful corporate worship, God-honoring stewardship. These are not easy. But oh, the glories of obeying so worthy a Lord as Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, Paul told Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I bet as I just read that again, and as you've read it hundreds of times, you went from work out salvation to fear and trembling. And there's a word you missed. And this is an easy word in Greek to pronounce. How to. How to. It's one word. How to. And it's you plural. We in English say you. Hey, you go get me something to drink. I'm I'm up here dying. I'm thirsty. Well, I might be talking to one of you. Or I might be talking to the deacons. I might be talking to the elders. I mean, we don't have a way in English to make that clear. You plural. I have a commentary set, though, that I love. It's the New Testament commentary uh, published by Baker, uh, Simon Kistemacher, and William Hendrickson. And they actually translate into English, Y-O-U, if it's plural, there's a space between the letters. Y-O-U. And you know, just by reading in English, that it's a plural in Greek. So, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that there is a corporate element to this salvation that we are working out. We are not Lone Ranger Christians. We are in this together. We are saved as individuals, and we are saved as the corporate body of Christ. We see this in Paul in in 1 Corinthians. Just a few chapters separated. 1 Corinthians 3. Don't have dissensions in the church because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, the, the corporate body, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't participate in sexual immorality because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your salvation does not just concern you, it concerns me, and so it is with your sanctification. We are indeed fellow pilgrims on the road to the celestial city. Let's help each other out. Okay, fear and trembling. Our salvation is a big deal. It is not something to be treated flippantly. If the only idea I had of Christianity was what I saw on so-called Christian television, and by the way, many people in the world, that's the only picture they have of Christianity, is what they see on the circus of Christian television. I would think if that were all I had, that the faith of our fathers was a very light thing indeed. But it is not Conceived by the triune God in eternity, pictured in the history of Old Testament Israel, brought to fullest fruition in the redemptive life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. No wonder the writer of Hebrews issued such a stern warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Our God is a consuming fire. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Our daily pilgrimage through this glorious journey we call the Christian life is fraught with many dangers, toils, and snares. It is serious business. It involves agonizing work. It is carried out in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God in whose presence the fiery seraphim must cover both their feet and their eyes. As Paul wrote in another context, who is sufficient for these things? Not me. Certainly, we are responsible for these things. So is this hopeless? Is this a cause for despair? Far from it. Because the rest of the text goes on. For it is God who works in you. Praise His name that He does. It pleases God to see us working out reverently the sanctifying implications of our salvation. And He is the one who gives the motivation and He gives the energy to make it happen. This is a divine human enterprise. Our justification, our being born again, our regeneration, our getting a new heart, our being made alive, that is a monergistic work. That is something that God alone does. But our sanctification is synergistic. We do this together with Him. This is why Paul can say so confidently earlier in this epistle, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because you're doing it, the work and He is enabling it. We exercise the spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. God does not give for us or encourage for us or teach for us or mercy for us. We do that. But He enables it. He makes it possible. There are varieties of activities, Paul said, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Now, there's a passage that you may not think of this twin truth being expressed in, because we normally think of it as an evangelism text, and it is that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But what about Ephesians 2, 10? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Wonderful. It's all of God. It is the gift of God. He does it. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You saw a homeless guy on the side of the road and you gave him a dollar and you gave him a tract and you told him briefly about Jesus. That good work didn't just happen. It was a divine appointment. And beyond being a divine appointment, it was a work that God prepared before the foundation of the world for you to do. You had to do it. And you did it. And He enabled it. Wonder of wonders. Why do we hold fast to the Word? We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, 
which is at work in you. God's work is doing, God's word is doing its work in us. All right, so secondly, verses 14 to 16, as there are things about us that are already true, we hold fast to the word in order to make them true. Some of this sounds kind of philosophical, but it's really not. It's really just, it's right there. As there are things about us that are already true, we hold fast to the word in order to make them true. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. How many of those things are true about you right now? Are you blameless in Christ? Is there any blame that attaches to you right now in Jesus? No? Are you innocent of all charges that the law thunderingly bring down upon your head? Yes, you are. Are you in fact right now children of God? Do you belong to Him? Are you part of His forever family? Are you without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world? Do you in fact hold fast desperately to the word of life? These are true things. But they're true now and they are becoming true as you obey these commands. With all of the lists of specific sins to avoid and definite virtues to pursue that are found in the Bible, here Paul focuses on two pitfalls to watch for. And I love this. He just, this isn't comprehensive, this isn't exhaustive, but here's something that you, can, that you can get your hands around, your arms around, for the day. Don't grumble and don't complain. There's lots of other stuff to think about. And, and as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but remember, there was, there was a guy who was a, a theological prodigy, and his grandfather was a pastor in the same association that I served in Central Florida. And... Um, this guy was involved with, with Ligonier Ministries. He was reformed through and through. He was a young guy, and he just he had it all up here and in here. It just seemed like he, he was going to be the next great whatever. And his grandfather got a call one day on a cell phone. And it was the last time he ever talked to his grandson. He was in a boat in deep water in central Florida with a rope or a chain, I can't remember, attached to a cinder block. And as he said goodbye to his grandfather, he threw the cinder block overboard and himself with it. The truths of Scripture, the deep things of theology, rather than comforting and encouraging and strengthening his heart, somehow drove him mad. And I've never wanted to do that, but I, I, get, a, I get a sense of the, the, the desperateness of what we are called to as believers. We, we need to know God. Well, how do you know someone who's infinite? We need to understand the Bible. How do you understand a book that's alive and that is inexhaustible? There are so many aspects of theology. I'm, I'm a professional, quote-unquote. I'm, I'm a minister of the gospel. I, 
I wake up every morning and I'm struck by the fact of how little I know and how much I don't know. But Paul reduces it here for the moment. He gives us a snapshot in in time. Okay, for right now, think about these two things. Don't grumble and don't dispute. The word grumbling is gonguzmas. Isn't that a great word? It's ugly. Isn't grumbling an ugly word in English? It's an ugly word in Greek. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't express displeasure. Don't murmur. Grumbling does us no good. It does our brothers and sisters no good. I have a man at our church, John Pierce. He never grumbles. He is in constant pain. Pain that I can't even fathom. But he never complains. He is in his mid-80s. Rain, shine, snow, sleet, tornado. He's there. When our church was at the height of its uh, last uh, strife and difficulty uh, many years ago now, thankfully... Uh, and people were leaving left and right and, and hating the doctrines of grace and hating the Word and hating what God was doing in our midst. He said, if it's just you and me, I'm with you. You preach the Word, I'm here. There's no, nobody who could complain more, grumble more than John Pierce, but doesn't. That, that's a witness to me. Well, don't grumble. Exodus 16, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. What an indictment. You were slaves. Now you're free. You were hotly pursued. And you were delivered through the Red Sea. You were not a nation. And of all the nations that God could have chosen, He chose you. You grumble against the Lord. There is the issue. When we grumble about things not going our way, we are grumbling against a good, sovereign, holy, loving, wise, fatherly, perfect God who ordains all things whatsoever come to pass. Did He mess up when things didn't go your way? May it never be. God takes grumbling seriously. 1 Corinthians 10, don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Don't grumble about your circumstances, but grow in grace and in a proper understanding of providence. Well, grumbling, secondly, complaining. This is simply don't dispute with one another. Don't grumble against God in your circumstances and don't be looking and nitpicking about your brothers and sisters. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. When you see strife, even rearing its ugly head, go after it. Be a peacemaker. 
deacons are in the church. They are, they are one of the offices that God gave because of this. They, they put down grumblings. They put down disputes. They, they help deal with those issues before they become issues. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. I could make a biblical theological argument that every one of those things is true of you right now. The declared righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you. He lived, He taught, He was baptized, He healed, He raised people from the dead, He perfectly obeyed the Father, He absolutely resisted the devil, and you get the credit for it. That is shocking. Jesus died for my sins in my place. I get that. I should have gone on the the cross. He went in my place. I can get some kind of grasp of the love that would send Him to Calvary's tree so that I could be forgiven. But Jesus lived for me so that God could treat me as if I were as righteous as Jesus? That boggles my mind. And yet that is what the Bible teaches. That is the full gospel. Jesus lived and Jesus died. Therefore, you are blameless, innocent children of God, no blemish, shining in the darkness of a messed up generation, and you're holding fast to the word that is already true of you, and it is becoming true of you as you strive to live blameless and innocent as children of God and so forth. God declares things about us that are true, and that nonetheless must be worked out to be fully true. Brother Blake mentioned the text in Hebrews, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You're holy. You're set apart already, but you've got to pursue holiness. By the way, if you've never read The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, a little tiny book, read it. The Lord's Prayer. This is an analogy, I think. Every one of those petitions is a foregone conclusion. Is the Father's name going to be hallowed? Yes. Is His kingdom going to come? Yes. Is His will going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? I couldn't read Twitter if I didn't know that absolutely to be true. Yet, we are commanded in the course, Christianity 101 taught by the Savior Himself, to pray for things that are already going to happen. Why? I don't know. Why did Abimelech take Sarah? And God says to him, I love this, you're a dead man. You're a dead man. Because you've, you've taken Abraham's wife. I did this in the integrity of my heart. I, I didn't know. Okay, I'll tell you what to do, God says to Abimelech. Go to Abraham. He's a prophet. And He will pray for you. What? I don't get that. Why the middleman? Why doesn't God just spare His life? Why does God use the means of prayer to spare the life of a man that He's about to kill? I don't know. But I do know this. Verses 14 to 16a are already true of us, yet they must be active pursuits of ours as well. The overarching activity is to hold fast to, to cling to, to desperately latch on to the Word of life. Don't let go of the Bible if you want to grow in grace. And just an aside, again, of life. It is the Word of life. 
They gave me the, the title, Holding Fast to the Word. But it's the Word of Life. Okay, it is the word of life. That means that it is living. You know Hebrews 4.12. I don't have to quote it. But the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. This, this motivates our counseling. Somebody comes to me and they say, well, I've got this deep-rooted problem. And what do I do? Well, there's a Christian counselor down the road I'll send you to. I don't do that. I say, come to my house... My wife and I will sit down with you with an open Bible and we'll get the living Word of God in on your problem. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of life that we desperately cling to is living, but not only that, it is life-giving. James says this, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all his creation. Brought us forth like a, like a midwife giving us birth. We didn't exist as a spiritual being. We, we didn't exist as, as a Christian. We didn't exist as a child of God. And we came into existence. He brought us forth. He birthed us through the instrumentality of the Word of God. It gives life. Peter said something similar. He said, we've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The living and abiding Word of God is what gives us our existence as believers. So hold fast to it. All right, third and finally, and this is quick, I promise. As the word to which we hold fast emboldens others, so it emboldens us. Verse 16. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's an unmistakable connection between Paul's confidence on the day of Christ's appearing or in the moment of his martyrdom and the holding fast to the word of life exhibited by the Philippians. There are lots of inducements in the Bible for you to live a godly life. Let me just recommend from this text one of those. Live in such a way that if one or all of your elders are called by God to go to the stake or to the guillotine or to the lions or to jail, that they will do so with you on their minds and they will do so with boldness and with joy, with gladness and with pride because of the faithfulness to Jesus that you exhibit. That's a worthy inducement to live a godly life. It's not the only one, but it's a worthy one. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you care about yourselves, here are some 
enlightened self-interest. Let the pastoral labors that are conducted in this church be done with joy. It'll be to your advantage, not your disadvantage. Not their, not their advantage. It'll be to your advantage if you let them do their work with joy. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul wrote the Thessalonians. So, Jesus is the incarnate Word. The Bible in your hand is the inscripturated Word. You and I fail so often to submit rightly to the Lordship of Jesus, but we want to. We sense the duty. We love the Lord and we long to obey Him. It's not easy, but it's simple. Hold fast to the Word desperately. Father, thank You that You have given us Your Word in its clarity, in its power, in its life-giving authority. Lord, thank You for the brothers and sisters in Christ that are here at this church. Thank You for the shepherds that You have given to them. And thank You that we have a Word to hold fast to that will get us through to the finish line. We love and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.